Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Saudi Arabia is aiming to wean its economy off the oil that made it spectacularly wealthy, and a renewed tourist push is part of that effort. We ask how likely the plan is to bring visitors or to drive investment. And Europeans love the flavor of blackcurrants, a healthy berry that doesn't tend to grow in great numbers. But surprising new research suggests that the kind of probiotics found in yogurt could help boost the berry's yields. First up, though. Cuba reopened to international tourism this week, and visitors will have noticed a few white sheets floating in the windows of homes. White is the color of a protest movement that had planned national demonstrations yesterday, the so-called Civic March for Change. But a few sheets were some of the only protest symbols on show. Cuba's communist government did its best to ensure no one took to the streets, emptying prisons to make room for detainees and harassing those who wore white t-shirts. So the protests happened elsewhere, in Miami, Florida, in Rome, in Berlin, in Mexico City, in Santiago, Chile. The government, which claims the protests are a U.S.-backed attempt to overthrow it, seems to be fighting a rising tide. The country's people are agitating for reform, and the repression of yesterday's demonstrations will only build up more pressure. This has been a very hard year in Cuba, even by Cuban standards. Roseanne Lake is The Economist's Cuba correspondent. There have been food and medicine shortages. COVID hit the island very, very hard. Miguel Diaz-Canel, who became president in 2018 after more than 55 years of Fidel and Raul Castro, has blamed the island's woes on U.S. sanctions. Durante más de 60 años, el gobierno de Estados Unidos no ha cesado ni un minuto en sus ataques contra Cuba. But people are starting to see through that. So these protests that seem ultimately to have been repressed, who planned them? Well, so you had the lead organizer of the protest, a 39-year-old playwright named Junior García Aguilera. Estamos simplemente mostrando abiertamente una diferencia de opinión. And he, together with others, formed this group called Archipelago, this movement, a civic movement, aimed at promoting political freedom for prisoners, defending the constitutional right to assembly, and finding peaceful democratic solutions to political differences, of which there are currently very many in Cuba. And so ultimately, this is about liberty and basic rights for Cubans, which are lacking. And there seems to be something of a growing protest mood in Cuba. 
So protests in Cuba don't have much of a precedent over the past 60 years, but there were rumblings of protests last November when about 300 people peacefully protested outside of the Cuban Ministry of Culture. That then escalated into far bigger protests in July. The food shortages and the medicine shortages were more acute and there had been more outages of electricity and more cut internet connections. That escalated into the protests that we saw yesterday that were very different in nature because they were far more organized and they were announced. The archipelago group actually asked permission to protest, and they were denied by the Cuban government, which claimed that they were being financed by the U.S. and that they had the intention of destabilizing the country. But we definitely see that from just a year ago, when a protest that involved 300 people was seen as something historic, just how much momentum this sort of spirit of dissidence has gained since. So the government was then quite determined to to stop protests this time around. The Cuban government can get very creative when they want to repress protests. So a couple of things they did. White roses have become the symbol of this march because of a a poem. And so the sale of white roses was prohibited. People were also prohibited from hanging white sheets because they were also seen as representing this march. Over the weekend, you had security officers surrounding, you know, the homes of key figures in this movement. So Junior Garcia Aguilera's home was surrounded. He was supposed to walk the streets of Havana at 3 p.m. holding a white rose. Instead, his home was surrounded. A big Cuban flag covered his window. He couldn't leave his home. And people were bussed in to dance a conga on the route that he planned to walk. And when, you know, one of the organizers of the archipelago group was outside hanging white sheets in her front patio, she was just ambushed by women of all ages, screaming at her violently, calling her a mercenary and all sorts of other things. And, you know, the images were really jarring. The government has also launched a media campaign against the protests. If you look at the president's Twitter account, it looks like nothing is going on in Cuba. So it's all about, you know, tourism is coming back to the island. And it's really two different worlds. But as far as these protests are concerned, the government seems to have gone really all out. I think there's a fear that it may be outnumbered, although that's unclear because they have done a very good job of instilling fear in people. Some of the advice that activists were giving to one another in in advance of the protests was, you know, wear white, stay in numbers, don't wear any loose bags or clothing. If they come for us and there are too many of us, they can't get us. And I think the government has picked up on that. I mean, we saw during the July 11th protests, there were cases where, you know, mobs just surrounded a police car and forced it to go out of town or to release whoever they were trying to take away, right? So mobs do have power, but they have to be allowed onto the streets in order to be able to face off. And, you know, it fears a lack of stability, that its power is actually being challenged in a very real way, and that it may run out of ways to suppress it. So given all of that and the government's sharp response here, do you think this protest movement will continue to build? It's difficult to say, right? The government has been very strong in its repression of key leaders of the movement, and people are scared, and rightfully so. Their jobs have been threatened, their livelihoods have been threatened, their loved ones have been taken away from them. There certainly is a reason to be fearful. But then again, there are people who are continuing with this and who are showing that they are not fearful. If we compare this to where these types of movements were a year ago, this is a sign of tremendous progress. There's also a lot more international visibility to what's happening in Cuba, which I think is helpful. When the U.S. is 
paying attention, when the EU is paying attention, when there are marches in over 100 cities across the world to support this event, that certainly means something. The end game here is obviously that this leads to free elections or at least the right to assembly and peaceful demonstration. At this point, that seems pretty far off. But we'll see what the next few days bring. I mean, this event is called 15N, right? Because it started on the 15th of November. But people are repeatedly saying the 15th of November is every day. It's the 16th, it's the 17th, it's the 18th, it's next month. They show no signs of of wanting to give up. Roseanne, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Saudi Arabia's leadership would like you to know that visiting the kingdom isn't just about religious pilgrimages. Run your fingers along the relics of a rich past. Discover new places where you can leave your mark. Be the first to witness a land of fascinating journeys. As part of a plan devised by the Saudi crown prince, the country wants to entice 50 million tourists a year. It's just one facet of a grand diversification effort, aiming to reduce the country's dependence on oil. But beneath the glossy tourism ads, there are serious questions about these ambitious reforms. This is a country that didn't even offer tourist visas until 2019, and it now expects tourism will contribute 10% of both GDP and jobs within a decade. Greg Karlstrom is our Middle East correspondent. Oil filled the government's coffers. It paid for subsidies for low taxes, uh, and it paid for government jobs for citizens, which allowed private firms to use inexpensive foreign labor. The government over the past five years has made some needed fiscal and labor reforms which have eroded these old selling points to the Saudi economy, and it's not yet clear what will replace them. But the Saudi government thinks that tourism is a key part of transforming the country. It does, and there is certainly a lot of untapped potential for tourism in Saudi Arabia. The country has long stretches of undeveloped coast on the Red Sea, which it's beginning now to turn into beach resorts. There are historic sites like the Nabataean ruins at Al-Orla in the northwest. Of course, there's a market for religious tourism in the birthplace of Islam. But uh, I think the question for the Saudi tourism industry is, Who is going to choose Saudi Arabia as a holiday destination uh, amongst all of the other holiday destinations out there? Much of what's being built uh, is aimed at the luxury market. So it's going to price out many prospective tourists. Of course, Saudi Arabia, a country with an image for social conservatism, which may put off some travelers. Alcohol at the moment is illegal. Officials are still coy about whether or not they plan to legalize it. So there's development going on, but I think the kingdom hasn't quite identified who exactly is going to come visit Saudi Arabia. So there's still quite a bit to be worked out, and yet there's this quite ambitious plan for growth. Why are they in such a rush? The plan is the brainchild of Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince and de facto leader of the country. Uh, He calls it Vision 2030. The goal is by 2030 to have made real progress 
diversifying the economy. And some of it is also due to the demographics of Saudi Arabia. This is a country with about 21 million citizens. Two thirds of them are under the age of 35. Uh, they need jobs and they also are chafing at the social restrictions in Saudi Arabia. And so they want diversions as well. On the jobs front, there has been some very visible progress over the past five years. If you walk through a mall in Riyadh or you go into a fashionable hotel, you will see Saudis working the tills, working the reception desks, brewing coffee, things that certainly 10 years ago would have been unimaginable in Saudi Arabia. Women have piled into the workforce over the past five years. They make up more than a quarter of Saudi citizens in work now. There are also some less positive signs. The participation rate has dropped by almost two percentage points this year. So uh, some Saudis are leaving the job market and there aren't enough jobs for educated Saudis. About half of those who are unemployed in the kingdom hold at least a bachelor's degree. And you mentioned the importance of young people keeping them happy, their concerns about social restrictions. Is the kingdom doing anything to ease those? It is. And this is one of the most noticeable and positive developments over the past five years. The country unrecognizable in many ways from what it was. Women, of course, several years ago were given the right to drive. It had been illegal for a long time. You walk into restaurants in Saudi Arabia where there were once partitions separating single men from families, from mixed gender groups. Those have come down in many places. There are concerts and other cultural events that would not have been allowed five years ago, certainly 10 years ago. And many of these changes, of course, give Saudis opportunities for fun, but also in the government's eyes create an opportunity for revenue, an opportunity for business. So is it working? Is the country becoming a target for investment off the back of those changes? The social changes certainly make Saudi Arabia more attractive for foreign businesses, but there is still a lot of uncertainty about the business climate in a country where Politics is dominated by a single man, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. Back in 2017, he rounded up dozens of businessmen and members of the royal family, accused them of corruption, held them in detention at the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh. They were released, many of them, only when uh, they agreed to turn over large portions of their assets. That move was popular with many Saudis who saw it as a blow against corruption for foreign investors, foreign businesses. Uh, it was a worrying sign about the business climate. More recently, there's been concern about tax. Several firms, including Uber, were served with very large bills for what were supposedly unpaid taxes, raising concern amongst businesses uh, about what seems like often a very arbitrary rule of law and business climate in Saudi Arabia. And so taking stock here with the tourism drive, the focus on foreign investments, do you, do you think it's likely that Saudi Arabia will hit its 2030 targets? The Saudi investment strategy under Vision 2030 had aimed to attract $10 billion in foreign direct investment and annual inflows by 2020. The actual number in 2020 was about half of what the kingdom was aiming for. No one was deterred by that. The crown prince came out last month and he said by 2030, Saudi Arabia will have $100 billion in annual FDI inflows, which is a, an absolutely unrealistic figure. This is something that happens quite often when you talk to Saudi officials. They set unrealistic targets, they miss them, and then they aim higher. And I think that applies to Vision 2030 as a whole. I think it's impossible for any country that was as dependent as Saudi Arabia on a single commodity to completely diversify its economy within a decade. I think it's going to be a much longer and much slower process. There are certainly some positive things happening, but I think there's also a sense that the government is trying to do too many things at once and isn't spending enough time evaluating what has worked, what hasn't worked. Uh, as one consultant who works with multinational firms told me in Riyadh, there are too many yes-men in the Crown Prince's inner circle. Greg, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. 
In Europe and Asia, the blackcurrant berry is a frequent fruity flavoring for all kinds of drinks, like creme de cassis, used in lots of cocktails. On the upside, the fruit is packed with vitamin C and those good-for-you antioxidants. On the downside, the bushes don't tend to produce all that many berries. Farmers wanting to boost their yields are reluctant to turn to chemical means, but thanks to some new research, they may not have to. Blackcurrants are grown all across Europe, particularly in the cooler areas. Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent for The Economist. The trouble is growing them in the yields that are required to meet demand is almost impossible if you're going to do it organically. But a team of researchers is proposing that it should be possible to enhance yields by using probiotics. Probiotics, where do they come in? So Jason, you know about probiotics because of human health. We, we read about them on yogurts. We know about people taking them as tablets. And that's because we're becoming increasingly aware of the fact that having lots of microorganisms in our guts is helpful to our health. But we're not the only organisms that benefit from having happy bacteria inside us. Plants also benefit greatly. Some of these bacteria live around the roots of the plant and release nutrients for the plant to use. Some of them help the plants to dissolve minerals that can help the plant to survive more effectively. So the idea of using probiotics to enhance the growth of the plant isn't crazy. In fact, it's been explored for a few years now, but no one has tried it with black currants before. So how has it been applied? So two researchers at the Institute of Botany at the Nature Research Center in Lithuania thought, well, you know what, why don't we test out whether or not spraying black currants with a range of different probiotics might help. So they set about doing this by selecting one field with the yield and growth enhancing probiotic. They did another field with nutrition content enhancing probiotic. They did one field where they did both. And then they left one control field that was just exposed to sprayed water. And what did they find? So the results were impressive. They discovered that when they sprayed the fields with both of the probiotics and they collected a thousand berries from the field, it yielded 780 grams worth of berries. When you compare that to the plot that was sprayed with just water, the thousand berries weighed just 530 grams. So you're talking about a near 50% increase in yield. But initially, the researchers were a bit incredulous because we know from studying agriculture that oftentimes when we enhance yields, we do it at the cost of nutrition. So they were worried because black currants are so rich in antioxidants. That's, that's a key reason why people want to buy black currant juice and other products made with this stuff. They didn't want to see the antioxidants being reduced in concentration just so the berries could grow bigger. So they did an analysis of the antioxidant content. And they found that as long as the field was sprayed with both of the probiotics together, the yields were enhanced and the antioxidants were not diminished. And what's the guess on why these probiotics are, are so beneficial to the blackcurrants? You see, the reason why the blackcurrants seem to be able to do so well when given the probiotics is berries themselves, the fruit bushes, are not having to do as much work to collect minerals and to fix nitrogen from the air because they've got such a great population of bacteria doing that for them. As a result, that frees up energy in the plant to do other things like fight diseases. So overall, it's good news for blackcurrant farmers then? It is good news for blackcurrant farmers, but actually it's even better news overall for agriculture. The reality is this same principle should apply to other fruits like apples, pears, and oranges. 
all of these plants benefit by having probiotics to enhance the bacterial colonies that are growing on them so that it frees the plants up to go and do other things like make delicious produce. Thanks very much for joining us, Matt. My pleasure, Jason. all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business... Whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.